Hey, this is Caleb Cole, pastor of Project Church in Sacramento. And man, I am so excited for you to hear this word. I believe God is going to encourage you, strengthen you, and challenge you through it. So get ready to receive from God today. Y'all look beautiful. Can you believe it's been 10 years? You know, sometimes when we just, everyone's like, no, I just, I'm new here. (laughs) Well, great. Let me just tell you, it's super exciting for us, maybe who have been here from the beginning. I think there's a few in the room who have been here from the start, some here for eight years, seven years, maybe some just for the last few months. But you know what? There's something special about firsts the first. And you're like, what? You guys are 10 years in. I'm like, hey, we're finishing up the first decade. It's only been the first. There's so much ahead. And so we're going to celebrate all that God has done, but God is going to show us and give us blueprints for what he wants to do in the future. So come out, celebrate the 10 year anniversary. It's a great time for you to invite your friends and yeah, have them experience the Lord with us. So yeah, would you give it up for the piano player? Our little Izzy? I'm not going to have them stand and read, but thanks for providing that background music. It's so good, isn't it? I, do I sound more spiritual right now? Now, if I say bow your heads, would that make you want to be? Okay, great. Well, hey, I'm going to jump right in. The word today is Genesis 19, and we get to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Who's excited? Dude, I was so excited. I was like, man, babe, I love when you give me all the hard topics. (laughs) It just so happened to fall on that day. Um, And so I'm really excited. It's actually not that hard, but I think that when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we think about some really kind of like hard things to talk about in church. And it's interesting because I've titled this message, A Call to Holiness. And it's interesting that even in church, in the culture that we live in today, holiness is hard to talk about, even in the church. It's like, holiness? Is that perfection? I thought this was a place for people in progress. That's why I came here, so I didn't have to be perfect. And you know what? You're right. And a call to holiness is not about perfection, but it's about seeking the person of God and becoming more like him. So what we do every week here is we open up the word and we read the word and God gives us insight. And from Genesis all the, way, all the way to Revelation, there's a blueprint for us to listen to, to hear, to um, get into our spirits so that we can answer the call to holiness. So I'm going to jump in to Genesis 19, 12 through 29. But first, I just want to let you know what we've been talking about these last few weeks. Again, we're talking about a call to holiness, but I got to set the stage for you. Genesis 1 through 11, um, we see the relationship of God and this world. And as he's developing a relationship, as he's creating um, nature, as he's creating people, um, we see that there's a great rebellion and the great rebellion kind of leads to the scattering. And so the world that God had established because he was so loving to give everybody free choice, they didn't do good with all their choices. And because of their wrong choices, um, there was rebellion and there's a scattering. And then in chapter 12, we get to a place where God says, you know what? We need to reestablish a plan. We we need to establish a plan to reestablish the creation that I intended for perfection. And the only way we're going to get back to the garden, the only way we're going to get back to perfection is if 
there's a rescue plan for all these fallen people. So God speaks a promise over Abraham and we are introduced to Abraham. And for the remaining chapters of Genesis, we see the family of Abraham and all of his sons, his nephews, his family. And what we see is that they are, they are as rebellious as the people in chapters one through 12. And it's like, dang, man, is there any hope? Yes, there is hope, never in humanity, never in ourselves, but always in the God who his lineage and through his lineage, through the imperfect, imperfect people, he establishes faithfulness with them, despite how rebellious they are. Are you grateful for that? That is a word for us today, that despite our wrongdoing, despite the sins that we commit, God is faithful to his people. So we're going to pick up here in Genesis 13. It says this in verse 12 and 13, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So what happens here is that Lot and Abram, they've established their um, cities and they're growing their space and they're becoming very prosperous. And then it's like, well, we're both pretty prosperous. And so why don't we spread the wealth? Why don't you go over there? And so Lot is sent by his uncle to go towards Sodom and he establishes himself in little towns leading up to Sodom. But the longer he's in these valleys, um, he makes his way closer and closer and closer into the city. And it's what's so interesting about this is that um, he gets closer to the city and the heart of city, um, a city, is a lot of prosperity, a lot of smart people, a lot of prospering and a lot of success. And that's a word for us today that in a lot of cities, that's where everybody comes together. All the cultures come together. All the um, most prestigious and prosperous people come and Lot was one of them. But what we see here is that the city, just like many cities here, in America and throughout the world, it was full of great sinners against the Lord. And so I don't know about you, but whenever I said Sodom and Gomorrah, or whenever I think of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think about sexual immorality. I think of a debaucherous people. And I think even when I said it today, they were like, whoa, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, here we go. And I think some of us probably checked out. Because we're like, those are for debaucherous people. I'm going to remember this message and take notes for my friend who's doing crazy stuff, you know? Like, well, I'm going to get him with this message. I'm going to copy the link and send it right to them, right? And what is so interesting about that is we have reduced Sodom and Gomorrah to a little a, a sin that many of us actually don't deal with. Like we're in the church. They are the debaucherous people. They were evil. They were sinners. They were just far from God. But Ezekiel 16, 14, excuse me, 16, 49 through 50, it gives us a little insight into Sodom. He says this, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Somebody say pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. You know, when the scriptures list um, different sins and when the scriptures list a bunch of words, oftentimes you have to um, really key in on the first. I said earlier, the firsts are important and I want to say this even for scripture, as you're reading scripture, the first time you read something, um, you want to pay attention, you want to lead in. When, when there is a list of some words and some um, adjectives, 
about something to describe something like sin or something like hope or something like different concepts in the Bible, it's important to go to the first word of that list. And the first word of this list is pride. So before we relegate Sodom and Gomorrah to just this um, sexual immorality that we can't relate to because um, it, it never was that bad. I mean, God hasn't wiped out any of these other cities, right? He hasn't wiped out Vegas. He hasn't wiped out Sacramento. Well, I don't think anybody's thinking Sacramento that way. But nobody's wiping out LA and New York City, none of these places, right? And so before we do that, we have to recognize that the root of all sin and the root of debauchery, the root of sexual immorality, the root of all of our sin is pride. And what you see in even this list is that pride led to excessive food. So they were prospering, but then they had, maybe they were wasteful. And you're like, wasteful? That's not a sin. That's just like a little old sin over there. And then it's like, oh, and they have prosperous ease. That's not really like a sin. I mean, they were just taking it easy. Well, sloth is a sin, you know? Laziness is a sin. Just a reminder. <laughs> Pride, excess of food, prosperous ease. And that leads to something that grieves the heart of God. And that's, they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. I almost read that naughty. It looks the same. <laughs> same, same. And did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. There was pride and haughtiness. Here's what Proverbs 11, 2 says about pride. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is the root of all of our evil. Pride is the root of all of the bad decisions that we make in our life. Pride is the beginning of our fall, destruction. You know, I think pride is so sneaky. You know, sometimes you think of the prideful people who are the people who are just sort of like puffed up about how good they are at something. But when I see pride pop up in my life, sometimes it's saying, you know, well, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I mean, I sin, but it's not that bad. And anytime we hear ourselves say it's not that bad, we have to be careful that we're not taking God off of the throne and replacing the throne with ourselves and saying we're the judge of our own lives. Sin is sin. We're, we're not the judge of our lives. God is the judge of our lives. And if he says it's bad and it, and it merits death, then it's pretty bad. Then sometimes we say, oh, it's not as bad as them. Again, we start comparing ourselves to others and saying there's weights and measures to all these sins. And we're not only judging ourselves, but we're judging the people around us. And then there's, well, at least it's not. And when I see all of these, you know, comments coming out of even my own mouth, like, oh, it's not that bad. It was just a story. It was my best friend. We're praying about it. Or, oh, some people were watching it. It wasn't that bad. It was just one bad scene, you know. It, it was just like for a little bit. It was just one time. All these things that we say, it's rooted in pride. It's rooted in us telling ourselves it's going to be okay when God says that um, we, all, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And our lives are but filthy rags. The decisions, the choices that we make, they're sinful. <laughs> 
And so I don't know if you're getting discouraged here today, but I want to encourage you that a call to holiness isn't a call to perfection. It's actually a call to humility. A call to holiness is a call to humility. You know what I see is that sin looks like comfort. Sin looks like prosperous ease. I think about how we live in America. Oh, we got it good. We're fine. Everything's fine. Everything's not as bad. Everything's not as bad as over there or nothing could be as bad as what they're doing in that country or in that city or in that part of the world. No, we are not the judges of our lives. God is calling his people to become holy. But holiness looks like humility. So before I jump into Genesis 19 and go into Sodom and Gomorrah, I want you to understand that God very well knew that Sodom and Gomorrah was a destructive place. It was a place that um, had all kinds of evil rampant there. And he approaches Abraham and Abraham because of his love for his uh, nephew and his family and the even the prosperity that they have come into in that city, he begins to negotiate with the Lord when the Lord tells him that he's going to destroy the city. And he's like, well, well, God, before you destroy the city, if there are 50 righteous people, would you not spare it? And God said, I will not smite them. I will not sweep them away um, if there are 50. And then I, I imagine because of the negotiation, how many verses it goes, I imagine Abraham going, well, there's probably not 50. If there's 40 people, can you please not sweep them away? Can you please can you be merciful to them? And God says, okay, I will not wipe or destroy the city if there's 40. And then he brings it down. I imagine Abraham's like really thinking about all the stories he's hearing about that place, all the destruction that is leaking out about what's happening in the city. And then he's like, brings it all the way down that, okay, Lord, if there are 10 people, 10, like that's probably more realistic. It's pretty crazy there. Like 10 people, can you just please not wipe it out? And God said, okay, if there's 10. And isn't it funny that when we negotiate with God and we try to like say, how about this many? And we barter with him, trying to tell him like, we just negotiate with him so much. Anybody else a negotiator? We negotiate with God as if he doesn't have the final say. And so all it says is like, and then um, God went away. (laughs) And Abraham's just like hoping like 10 people, good God, to just have like nine more kids and those babies are pure. So let's just have righteous, at least 10, right? Well, God sends two angels to Sodom and they're met by Lot who says, oh, come on into my city, come into the city, actually come to my home. I wanna take care of you um, and I wanna feed you. They ate unleavened bread, they celebrated together. Um, at first they were like, no, 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 we're actually here just to assess the land and we're just here to, to be here. We don't need to go in, but he was so insistent. This, this man, he was so hospitable. Lot, he was a righteous man, okay? He's one of the right, only righteous men left in the city. And so he brings them into their home. But then the men of the city hear about these two other men, these angels who are actually angels, and they're like, well, we, if they're new here, um, we're gonna do what we always do, and we're gonna lure them into sexual immorality and sexual sin. And so what they wanted to do was to rape the two men. And so they come to Lot's door, they're knocking on the door and they're like, let these, bring these guys out. If, they're, if, if there's those two men or if they're in your house, like we wanna take them. And Lot's just like, no, 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 please don't. And he comes outside, comes outside and meets the men. He's like, if you want my daughters, then take my daughters, but leave these men alone. 
they're my guests. And the wicked men say, we don't even want your daughters. And if you're not going to give them to us, then we're going to take you. This is in the Bible, you guys. And this is how sinful and evil these people are. And remember I said that Lot was righteous? <laughs> and he offered his two girls. Well, the angels were like, okay, before this goes really bad and there's zero righteous people left, they take Lot and they say, come back in here. Like, protect yourself. Get your wives. Get their son, your soon-to-be sons-in-law. Bring your wife. We got to get you out of here. And the, the men blinded all the other men. The, the angels blinded the men and they were just grabbing for the door. I just imagined this crazy scene of them trying to get to the men, but they're blinded. They can't see anymore because that's the power of God on the angels' lives. And so they're like, let's get out of here. And so we pick up here, Genesis 19, 12 through 29. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to him, his sons-in-law, oh, it seemed to his sons-in-law that he was just jesting. He was just joking. He was just messing with them. Well, the next morning dawned and the angels urged Lot. It's almost like they're like, he's like, they, they were saying to Lot, if your sons-in-law aren't coming, take everybody else, leave them behind. And he says, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But, but he lingered. Somebody say lingered. Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Somebody say merciful. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out. One said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is little, it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Zoar means little. And then God destroys Sodom. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. Somebody say looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up with the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. There's a lot of things that we can learn about Lot here. I don't know about you, but I'm just like, man, I see myself here. How many people have ever lingered when you knew you were in the place that you weren't even supposed to be in? 
How many of you have lingered? Have you stayed longer than God wanted you to? How many times did you negotiate? How many times did you try to convince everybody around you? And then finally, somebody said, stop trying to convince everybody. Now just come with me, right? That's what the, that's what the, um, the angels did. They told him like, just come on, just take your wife and your two daughters before you get swept away. And I want you to understand this. It says here in verse 16, the Lord being merciful to him. How many people know that God is merciful? There's so many times in our life that I have lit, that I have lingered with God. I've negotiated with God. I've been hesitant. I've been reluctant. And when I'm reluctant, I know that I'm not willfully obeying. I'm delightfully disobeying. <laughs> and God is wanting to say to us, I am merciful, even though you aren't perfect, even though that you're, you're waiting, even though you're lingering, I'm still going to provide a way out because I have a promise to my people. He always provides a way out. He provides a way out in the middle of temptation. And here's the thing, man. Lot, he didn't even take the advice of two angels who blinded the guys who were attacking him. These guys who, who showed much power and who showed much um, gifting and who were definitely sent by God, who were going to be the ones who were going to bring destruction to Sodom. He said, you know what? You're telling me to escape the hills, but can I just stay in Zoar? And, and this is just my, as I was reading, I, I, I just wondered, I'm like, man, Zoar was closer to Sodom, but they were telling him to escape to the hills. But Zoar was a little bit closer. He didn't want to go as far as the men wanted him to go. And it just makes me wonder, just makes me wonder. I'm not saying that I'm a theologian and that I have all this backup for this, but I just wonder if he was further past Zoar, if he would have been able to see Sodom. I wonder if he had gone just a little bit farther, if his wife wouldn't have been tempted to look back. Sometimes I feel like God is saying, I want you to be pure. I want you to be Joseph, who just runs the opposite way and leaves everything, never even looking behind. But how many of us, when we know that we're lingering in sin, when we know that we're doing something that's not 100% right, and we just take kind of a step away and we're like, okay, I'll just do it just maybe like halfway tomorrow or next week or next month. And we're not really far away from the temptation and it's easier to look back. God's wanting us to flee, go the opposite direction so that you don't even have a remembrance of it or even a desire or want for it. God's wanting us to turn away. I wonder, I just wonder if his wife would have been a pillar of salt. There's so many things that we can observe about Lot, but I love a question that my friend, Michelle, she asks her friends every birthday that they have, what is the one thing about God that you learned this year that you didn't know about him last year. So she asked me that this birthday and I was like really racking my brain. And then I started thinking about the years of even doing this church. And I look about, I look at my kids and how I'm grateful for them. I look at my husband and the marriage that we've created. And then I think about all the things that I did wrong. Yet my marriage is strong yet my kids are growing, yet the church is doing well. It feels healthy and we're strong and we're growing. And I go, 
But that wasn't because of anything that I did. I think of all the times that I lingered. I think of all the times that I didn't take advice of people who were really for me and not against me and who had more wisdom than me and maybe even like, yeah, had exhibited more power in the Lord and trust and faith in him, yet I didn't listen. And I said, whew, I think this year I learned mercy. Sometimes we say goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And when we say good here in this world, in this culture, in this day and age, good is attached to us doing a good job. So we like goodness and all my life you have been faithful. All I will sing of the goodness of God. I changed keys. It's okay. <laughs> goodness of God. Oh yes. Bless us. Bless us. You've been good. You've blessed us. And now I'm like, no, surely goodness and mercy and mercy. It has nothing to do with our own merit. It's not good job, Chrissy. So you're going to get these blessings. No, it's just because God is a merciful God that there are blessings around us. The reason why the church is still standing is because he is a merciful God. Caleb and I are not perfect leaders. The staff is not perfect staff. The, the church, the leaders, and no one's perfect here. That's why we're called a people in progress. It's his mercy that we stand. It's his mercy that my family is in the position that it's in. It's his mercy that my marriage has made it 14 years. It's his mercy that we are still here. Thank you, God, for your mercy. But there's a lot that we can learn from Lot's wife. Lot, he's righteous. He's trying to answer that call of holiness. And she just didn't. <laughs> When you look at her life, lessons from Lot's wife. When I think about looking back, I think about, man, these people rescued you. They pulled you out. Your husband's leading you out. And there's like the hope of a future and they're prosperous and your family has scattered. Your family's prosperous. Abraham is right up there. You, you have a great life and you get to leave a debaucherous, sinful area. But her hope, I wonder if it was misplaced. I wonder if her hope was placed in something that was behind her. Let me ask you today, what are your eyes on? What your eyes are longing for, what you're yearning for, maybe where you're placing your hope in. And when I think about the past, it's like, yes, I need to learn from my past, but I don't need to be yearning for my past. God has something for us in the future. God says that something in the, that the life that he has for us is a plan to prosper us and plan to not harm us, but to give us a future and a hope. Hope is future. Hope is looking forward and it's never looking behind. Yes, we can think about the good things that God has done, but if we're yearning for our past, we are not looking and trying to learn from our past to go move towards the hope of a future. So God is letting us know Lot's wife, perhaps she was, she had misplaced hope. What happens when we hope in things that we shouldn't be hoping for is perhaps because we have been disappointed in what Jesus didn't do. So you're going to go back. You're going to go back to really what you thought you were in control of. And really, the whole time you didn't have control. Control is an illusion. Control is an illusion. Perhaps Lot had misplaced hope. Maybe even she had disordered priorities. Maybe. When I talk to my kids, I always tell them, I am third. Somebody say, I am third. 
I tell them we are third because God's first, others are second, and ourselves, me, I am third. God first, others second, myself third. You know, if I was trying to get my family out of a place that is about to be destroyed with sulfur, I mean, I was... I I think I would hope that I was concerned about my family, concerned about my kids, concerned about where we're going. But she turned back and she yearned for the past. And I wonder if there's just some disordered priorities that we have. Should we be prioritizing our family? Should we be prioritizing our future? Or should we be stuck in the past or maybe having a bad attitude and irritability? Bad attitudes and irritability has a lot to do with what's happening in us internally And sometimes you can really understand that bad attitudes and irritability are connected to fear. And a lot of times people have bad attitudes because they're afraid of the future. And sometimes disordered priorities look like ruminating, ruminating over different regrets and shame. When you're looking in the past, you're regretting. Or you're like, oh, what could I have done? What should I have done? Or what am I missing out on? That is regret and shame. When we look to the past, I wonder if we are not, we have disordered priorities. You know, I was talking about this with some friends because we all go to therapy. And therapy, we learn a lot about something called um, the bus or our brains or our minds are like a bus and we have different passengers on it. And the passenger that really bugs me a lot is the passenger that is named shame, right? And a lot of times we're like, Jesus, take the wheel or me. I'm gonna take the wheel. And then the shame passenger comes up and like kicks me and then, then, takes that wheel and the shame passenger is in charge. Anybody ever have the shame passenger in charge and it's just shaming you and telling you, no, you need to go this way because you did that wrong. And what I see is the passenger just going, saying, okay, I'm gonna create boundaries on my own. I'm gonna do the best I can. I'm gonna have a checklist for how I need to do life and how I need to serve God. And then then I'm gonna let shame drive my car and then I'm just gonna bang into the guardrails and our car is beat up and bruised and broken. And God's wanting to tell people here, people here today, I want to free you from that passenger that can take a back seat. I'm going to drive this car. I know where you're supposed to go. I'm on the path of a hope and a future that was meant for you that's better than you can even create and go and create a path for on your own. That's who God is. That is the merciful God that we serve. He's saying, reorder your priorities. Stop ruminating over the regrets and the should'ves and the could'ves and the shame. And just shut that shame passenger up. You know how you shut him up? You let God drive your, drive your car. You let him in the driver's seat. You say, Jesus, take the wheel. I had to. <sighs> What else do we learn from Lot's wife? She had a lot of filtered memories. I wonder if she had a lot of filtered memories. It makes me think of the Israelites. And when they left Egypt, sometimes they looked back and they complained. If you find yourself complaining, I wonder if you're looking back. If you find yourself complaining about everything, I think you're looking back at what you thought was good, but really what you're doing is what um, a writer of a song says, that you're painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacks. The future feels so hard, so I want to go back. But the places that used to fit me cannot hold the things I've learned. This road was cut off to me when my back was turned. Stop painting pictures of Egypt. Stop romanticizing the past. The past is never going to be better than the future that God has for you. 
He has a future and a hope. Don't filter your memories anymore. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't leave out what it lacks. God always has better for you. If you're still on this earth and that you, you haven't completed your mission yet, and the mission just gets more adventurous. The mission just includes more people. The mission is just you closer to the destiny and you getting to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, because it's not about the dreams that you have, but it's on the mission that God has called you to. And God wants to say, you have been faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be our greatest reward. Not what I've built, not what I've done on my own, not the pride that says, I'm gonna self-protect, that's gonna say that I'm gonna self-preserve, that's gonna say, I'm gonna self-care and I'm going to be all about my self-esteem and I'm going to be all about myself, self, 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 self. No, God is saying, no, serve, 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 serve. A call to holiness looks like a call to humility. A call to humility. You know, Genesis is very much, excuse me, very much connected to Jesus. I, I preached a message a few months ago and it was about Jesus is in the beginning and the end. This whole rescue plan, this whole rescue plan that he talks about in chapter 12, and the reason why he's showing us all the, the craziness that happens in Abraham's family is because God is trying to say that he is faithful and he's gonna provide a way out. He's gonna provide um, someone who's gonna be the ultimate sacrifice so that you can move forward and do everything that he's called you to so that you can actually live a life of humility so that you can answer the call. Let me read about it in Luke 17, 20. Jesus talks about Lot and Lot's wife. It says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Jesus talks about Lot's wife because he's trying to tell the disciples that, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. I am here. I am the rescue plan. I am the, the, the reason why you're going to be saved from death, hell, and the grave. You are going to be saved because of me. I'm going to give my life so that you can have life. So God is saying the kingdom of God is here. And every single one of you who accept me, you are in the kingdom and you have a part to play in the kingdom. You have a part to serve in the kingdom. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He served by giving us his life. He served by living a life of humility. And if we're gonna answer the call to holiness, then we're gonna answer a call to humility because it's the only call that will complete the task of totally carrying out the Great Commission. God has a plan and a purpose for us and he has a mission for us. But he's reminding us, even though the kingdom is at hand, don't be like what it says here. And they will say to you, look there or look here and don't go out and, or follow them. And he's saying, don't be like the people who look for that or look over there or look over here or look at the news or look at the Democrats or look at the Republicans or look at the um, mask wearers or the not mask wearers. Is that a thing anymore? I don't think so. Anyways, don't look at that, 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 that group of people or that group of people. Don't look at the news or don't look at the news outlet. Don't look at all these things. Look at one person. If you're gonna answer the call to humility and that person is Jesus, what do we learn from Jesus? Why is he telling us to remember Lot? It's because he's trying to remember, remind us to not look backwards, look forward and who's in front of you? Where are you gonna find your hope? Your hope is in front of you and their hope is always Jesus. The, the greatest reward of this life is Jesus. 
So lessons from Jesus, place your hope in one person and him and him alone. Second, we need to press onward with holiness. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call, the upward call to answer the call of our creator. And the goal is to be with Jesus. Press on, press forward, stop looking back and also press inward with hope. Hebrews 6, 19, it says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So many people, so many of us were living behind a curtain. We're living under, behind the curtain and it's a facade that says that I'm a Christian, I'm a good person, I'm a churchgoer. I do good things, I have good behavior, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I don't need anybody else. But no, when we press on inward, then we find a hope that's in us because when God's in there, when he's working things out with us in the secret place, in the private place, when we're cultivating a relationship that's just with me and him, then we find that there's a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, behind the facades, behind the fakeness, behind the externals, behind the great church attendance, behind the great giving, behind the everything and all the titles. Gosh, it's the inner place where God says there is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. You know, I, I, re, I preach a message like this. It's about the holiness, a call to holiness. It's about a call to humility. And sometimes it's like, man, God just really doesn't like us. He just wants us to get better. But can I just tell you, he loves you so much. He wants to fill, he wants to fill you with hope. He loves you so much, he doesn't want you to be devastated anymore. He loves you so much, he doesn't want you to be desperate any longer for what you can do for yourself. He loves you so much. He wants to give you a solution for the life that you're trying to create and build on your own. He loves you so much that he wants you to honor him and say, stop trying to put yourself on the throne. That's a lot to control. That's a lot to maintain. Be desperate for me and me alone and walk in humility. And when you are low, then I'll be exalted and then I'll be the person in your brain that's running your life. Make him the Lord of your life. Sit on the let him sit on the throne of your hearts. Oh man, he's saying, I love you so much. I want the best for you. Submit to me. Answer the call of holiness. It looks like answering the call of humility. He doesn't want it on you anymore. Sometimes when we in our own strength, look to the things of the past. We were like, we try to remedy everything that should have been, could have been. They should have, I should have. We try to remedy our past as if that's gonna create our future. But God is saying, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. He wants to make some of you new creatures, new creations in him. He's saying, don't be the old person anymore. Let me change your life and look to the future. Behold, I am doing a new thing in your life. Behold, I have a great future for you. 
how it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert place. Listen, a call to holiness and a call to humility cannot be answered apart from Jesus. We all need Jesus to answer this call. We all need him to, in order to be holy. We are not holy without, with him, without him, excuse me. Answer the call to humility. He was the perfect example of humility. And he's just saying, just be lowly, lowly, lowly. So I will be exalted. Sit on the throne of your heart and guide you into the best life. It might be hard. It's not gonna be perfect. It's gonna take you through some struggles. It's gonna take you through some threshing. It's gonna be some sharpening in there, but it's better than you can create for yourself. And it's gonna lead you straight to Jesus, the greatest reward on this earth and beyond. It's him, it's him, it's him. Would you bow your heads in this place? Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to the Project Church podcast. We pray and hope that this message encouraged you, built you up, and gave you life. We want to ask that you would invest right now in what God is doing here in downtown Sacramento. We've just recently moved in to our all-new building in the waterfront, Old Sacramento District. We want to ask you, if you'd like to give, you can go to projectchurch.com forward slash give to invest. Let's see all that God can do through us.